everyone. Welcome. This is Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England. Welcome to Medically Speaking. Thank you for joining us tonight. Johnny is sitting here laughing because we still have that little Calypso music going. But I think we can keep that little song until the summer. Yeah, but again, we are definitely going to have to move towards changing our our intro song to something a little bit different come the fall. Because fall brings everything new, right? So we need to bring in a new song. So thank you again for joining me. We have a really interesting program for you again tonight. Um, I have with me a brand new physician who has recently joined us, Dr. George Miller, who is a surgical oncologist. Hi, Dr. Miller. Hi, Robin. Good to join you. You Thank you for joining us. So I heard you're not in the car. We were afraid Correct. you'd be driving. So you're back home. Yes, I left early enough, and I'm in my uh, office at home. Oh, good. So we didn't hit any traffic, and you got back home. That's good. Thank you. I was worried that if you were going over that Tappan Zee Bridge, that you were going to hit some bad inter- bad, bad uh, timing where you're, you'd be get interference. Yeah, I, I didn't want to flare on the radio. <laughs> well, Dr. Miller, thank you so much again for joining us. And what I'm going to do right now is I want to let our our audience know a little bit more about you and then I'm going to ask you more about yourself just because we really surgical oncology is a term that I think the general population hears a lot about but doesn't realize it's a specialty within general surgery and what you actually do and what is going to happen here in the greater Waterbury community that really will change how we treat our cancer patients so Dr. Miller is board certified um, in the American Board of Surgery. He joined St. Mary's and Trinity um, Health of New England Medical Group as a surgical oncologist. He specializes in complex surgical oncology, and his particular area of interest with that are cancers of the liver, pancreas, and gastrointestinal tract. Um, He is a native, Brooklyn. And we know you're a Yankee fan, so I'm very excited about that. Um, Native from Brooklyn, New York, yes. Um, He received his Bachelor's of Arts degree from Columbia University and his Doctor of Medicine from McGill University, Faculty of Medicine. You completed your residency of general surgery in New York University School of Medicine, followed by a trio of fellowships, which is amazing, from Memorial Sloan Kettering, which I know a lot of people know about in surgical oncology, heptobiliary and pancreatic surgery, as well as experimental immunology. That is a mouthful. You are in a very well-known, well-renowned surgeon, and we are, how we ever came upon you is, it's incredible, and we are so happy to have you. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, as you said the other day when we were out, you're kind of learning a little bit more about the neighborhoods in Greater Waterbury and all the little surrounding towns. And I think you found it pretty neat, right? The suburbia. Yeah, I, lo- I love the environment. Like I was saying yesterday, going to each of these towns is like a little uh, uh, slice of Americana. I've been in this uh, bubble of the New York City metropolitan area for too long. And it's uh, really refreshing being in uh, that part of Connecticut and southern New England. Yeah, you know, Doc, it's, it's we are, I, I can't believe recently, we have gotten so many physicians coming into our area, particularly with Trinity, physicians that want to move out of the city, want to come into more areas like this. I mean, we think of the greater Waterbury area as a big city, right? Hartford is a big city. It is 
tiny microscopic compared to what New York is. But to bring the specialties of all you've encountered in the New York metropolitan area and bring it here, it's it's just going to change the way we do medicine. Yeah, I hope it does. Um, you know, I, I also notice that just the people, it's a different culture. People are very friendly. And uh, I've been welcomed uh, so much that it's uh, really uh, heartwarming for me. That's awesome. And I think you, you get to see, too, we're kind of like one big family. Everybody knows each other. Yes, yes, yes. I haven't met a person yet that doesn't know you very well. Or your nurse, or your nurse, Marianne, exactly. right? <laughs> right. She seemed to have gone to nursing school with every other nurse we've met or been a teacher to them. So yeah. just so you know, our uh, our producer here, Johnny, who picked up for you, his wife was a nurse at St. Mary's also. She recently oh. retired. She used to work in our same-day surgery department, so she's very excited to hear about you. So she's listening tonight because she wanted to know yeah. about you. So, so it definitely okay. is a small community. So now when we look at your specialty, surgical oncology, maybe to help the audience understand better. What does that mean to be a surgical oncologist? Right. So I think in the, in the old days, um, there was one field of general surgery. And when a patient had a uh, uh, cancer that, that uh, was surgery with appropriate treatment, the general surgeon did it. But as cancer care has become more complex and often involves multidisciplinary teams of radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, uh, even immunotherapy now. Uh, the, the, the specialty of surgical oncology developed over the past, I'd say, 30 years since the early 1990s as its own specialty uh, where there's two aspects to it. One is the skill to do some very complex operations, but also the knowledge of when to do it, when to prioritize or integrate uh, other uh, um, uh, arms of, of cancer care. So it's both uh, a technical and uh, intellectual uh, training. So when I think back to some of the early days of my nursing, you know, and, and when I graduated nursing school, I'm dating myself way back, but in 1982, you know, a lot of the surgeries were surgeries. You go in and you cut it out. Yes. Right, with without the different disciplines working together necessarily to maybe treat the cancer before you actually do surgery or integrate them at the same time that you're doing the surgery. Right. So, so correct. So there's something called neoadjuvant treatment where right. we'll give other treatments beforehand. We've also, um, uh, I've been involved in uh, intraoperative therapy, like uh, brachytherapy is when you give radiation during surgery, <laughs> where radiation oncologists and surgeons work together. We've also uh, implanted uh, certain pumps uh, into patients uh, so that uh, patients can have continuous infusion of chemotherapy directly into organs like the liver. Right. So there is a lot of uh, integration of our specialty uh, with uh, other fields. So they really, you know, before we get deep into some of the things that you do do and, and some avenues you go down in, in within your specialty, one of the things that I think is really exciting, and I want to make sure we say it now, and I'll definitely end with it too in case someone misses it, but your particular specialty in doing what you do brings another level of care to this area where before patients really were going elsewhere, out of town, to get these types of... 
Right. So my specialty is uh, in surgical oncology, surgery of the pancreas, most of cancer, but also for uh, pre-malignant uh, uh, diseases of the pancreas that can develop into, into pancreas cancer, mm-hmm. as well as uh, tumors of the liver and uh, bile ducts and uh, uh, upper GI cancers like stomach cancer. Now you're right that no one, there was no one in the greater Waterbury area that was offering uh, these services. So I definitely feel like um, I'm filling a niche uh, in, in, uh, in this region. It's exciting, too, because you're doing those surgeries right here. So we're not sending those surgeries to any one of our other hospitals. Although, you know, if there's a patient in another hospital within our system, you would certainly treat that patient, say, at St. Francis. But here in Waterbury, you are able to do these right at St. Mary's Hospital. Yeah, and uh, for patients who live in the area, it makes it a lot uh, easier for uh, their relatives and for them. And... um, if patients are going to get treated afterwards, because most patients who I treat also get other forms of treatment right. uh, because cancer care is so multidisciplinary that this, uh, you know, improves the communication between physicians because if someone was going to New York City or to Boston or across the state to get their surgery and then they come back, uh, you know, the pathology is not available here. Right. Um, the oper- operative record is not here. So I think to get the highest level of surgical care uh, for uh some of these complex cancers is very important for our, our health system. Definitely. You know, we, we talk about that all the time, about having one complete system where all the information is in one system so that if you see one of our primary care physicians and, and that physician does a test on a patient, that physician that's being referred to can pull the same test up without anything having to be faxed, without films being brought. Everything is right in the system. Right, that's exactly true. And that's uh, the best type of care, and that's why um, Trinity has, excuse me, the most up-to-date electronic medical record system. So we do communicate very effectively. We also have regular multidisciplinary conferences uh, with all uh, with, with patients, uh, well, sorry, with physicians who are all the physicians that are caring for a particular patient. And like you said, it is a family. So I'm getting to know uh, both the primary care mm-hmm. physicians as well as the, uh, subspe- the specialists like the gastroenterologists, um, the radiologists. So we can all communicate uh, very effectively and optimize uh, patient care. You know, and I think that's what I found great um, when you and I first started um, working together was, you know, you telling me where you needed to go, who were the most important players for you to meet with, because you looked at them as your team. So you need to be able to communicate to them what you can do to help them when they identify a patient. Absolutely. Surgical oncology is, 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 is a team sport, to use that analogy. Right. And I can't do anything without uh, the great team that uh, uh, St. Mary's and Trinity Health has assembled. And it's very important for, even though I just got here a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. to right away to establish a really good uh, working uh, collegial relationship.
And I'm very thankful to you, Robin, for uh, facilitating that. Oh, Doc, that that's definitely my job. But I'm also, I'm, I always call myself a proud mama because I am so proud of what we have here. And to be able to bring you around to the people that I'm most proud of and say, look at what I brought you. And they're like, oh my gosh, we've been waiting for this. This is great. It was just like almost like opening a gift on Christmas morning. So, you know, I know when you, you met, when you met with our radiologists and you met with our GI guys, our GI team, and then as well as the radiologists that I used to work with, they were like, wow, this is amazing to have right here. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of gratification going uh, both ways that uh, I'm very happy to be here. They're happy I'm here because it really uh, completes our cancer team. Um, and I think we also are associated with a great facility uh, in the Lever Cancer Center uh, with our excellent uh, uh, medical oncologists and radiation therapists. So I'm really excited to work with them, too, and to um, be able to attend their conferences and offer our patients uh, the clinical trials that are uh, available there. You know, I like to, I, I always say to people, you know, Waterbury, the greater Waterbury area is kind of like a, mid, a, like a mini New York. We have all the best of the best right here, um, just on a smaller scale. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's exactly, exactly uh, the goal. And I wouldn't want to be in any other place where we can't offer what I think is as good a care as you can get at a major uh, uh, cancer center like Memorial Sloan Kettering. Right. But I think we can offer it right here uh, with the sort of family approach. And, you know, and what I look to for you is, as time goes on, for you to hopefully identify areas where we can get more of your colleagues that may want to do certain things here. And, and I could just see this growing in the future. But for now, we're going to focus on exactly what you do. So what I want to talk more about are the surgeries that are, are your biggest clinical interests, which is the liver, pancreas, and, and GI cancer. So, you know, as a surgical oncologist focusing, focusing on this and looking at this, let's talk a bit about, you know, and, and maybe we'll start with the pancreas that I'll leave because I think that's a bigger one, but let's talk about the liver. So when we look at the liver, what are some of the cancers or precancerous things that you see or treat in the liver? Right. Well, so liver cancer is unique in that um, it only occurs in patients who have pre-existing liver disease. Hmm. So um, by pre-existing liver disease, uh, we're talking about liver fibrosis, which usually is either a result of hepatitis, like hepatitis uh, B or C, Mm -hmm. or um, uh, chronic alcohol use, well, so th- those three encapture more than 90% of patients who develop uh, primary liver cancer, or maybe 80%. So um, we have our GI doctors, our gastroenterologists, have a very active uh, screening program for patients who have chronic liver disease, um, cirrhosis or pre-cirrhosis, and uh, they get screened uh, both with blood work and with uh, imaging like uh, uh, MRIs. And when they do have tumors, uh, we have many treatment options. Some of them involve uh, uh, um, surgery, which I um, uh, do, obviously. Um, Other options are um, to burn the tumor with uh, interventional radiology. That's why I work very closely with our interventional radiologists. And other options are are chemotherapy. So um, 
I'm very interested in being very involved with our uh, screening program so we can uh, pick up these uh, liver cancers uh, before they uh, become untreatable or difficult to treat. Um, so uh, it's... Um, That's really yeah. interesting because, you know, I, I've heard you speak of over the last several days with physicians and, you know, you and I hear it in your voice now, you... You had you've said to them you're kind of like the quarterback, right? So Correct. when stuff comes your way, it's good to have that multidisciplinary approach. But you can assist in directing the care. So who goes Absolutely. first? It's not always right to surgery. Correct. So I'm not a technician. Right. Um, surgery is very tactical, and liver surgery especially requires a lot of expertise. But it's really an art of because there are so many different options uh, for liver cancer, they have to know what the best option is. And the best option depends on an uh, array of factors that includes the patient's underlying liver disease, mm. their general health, um, and the uh, characteristics of the tumor, like the size, the location within the liver. So it requires a lot of uh, training and experience just to know uh, what's the best uh, treatment option? And then the surgery part is uh, r- relatively easy compared to that, or, or less important in some ways, although yeah. you do need a lot of expertise uh, to operate on the liver because in, in general surgery training programs, in general surgery residency, you don't really get enough experience uh, to do uh, major liver surgery. Uh, that's why um, it requires a, a fellowship training in surgical oncology and impedibiliary uh, surgery. Um, and you've done quite a few based on your resume. Oh, oh, oh yeah, hundreds. Yeah. yeah. Well uh, over 300, 300 of those. Right. Yes. And Because um, it's very um, vascular, too. Absolutely. Um, in residency, they, they used to say, uh, don't touch the liver, because if you touch it, it's going to bleed. Yeah. And that's true. But you have, if you know liver anatomy and know how to sort of uh, control it and approach it, then, then it makes the surgery safe. The or, or death rate surgery in the 70s or early 80s, but it's, it's very now uh, because of the techniques we use. Um, so even uh, resecting 60% of someone's liver uh, uh, is done with uh, you know 1% mortality or less. So um, a couple of questions I have. So yes. So how much how much of your liver can you live with? Like if you had to resect it. Right. So it's a bit of a moving target. So in people who have normal livers, right? Uh, who who when I say normal livers, it's not fibrotic. They don't drink uh, a six pack of beer every evening. You can remove about eighty eighty five percent of someone's liver. Wow! And and they survive. Now eighty five percent is pushing it, but certainly seventy percent uh, I wouldn't uh, sweat. Hmm. Um, if someone has a completely normal liver. Um, if someone has uh, liver fibrosis, um, then it, it's less. So you have to take into account their baseline liver function before um, making that determination. I should also mention that I don't only deal with uh, liver cancers, but also there are many uh, benign conditions uh, of the liver uh, uh, that I, I treat, uh, like benign tumors like hemangiomas. Right. Uh, Mouth, giant malformation of blood vessels. Usually we don't operate on them, but sometimes they're 
they can grow up to 40 centimeters and wow. be symptomatic. In those cases, uh, when they're symptomatic, we would consider uh, a surgery. And there's other uh, common conditions like uh, something called adenomas, uh-huh. which can develop in women, especially uh, women on birth control pills. Uh, sometimes develop these adenomas in the liver. And the reason that they're concerning is because uh, they uh, rarely, but sometimes can uh, transform into actual cancers. Right. And also, when they get very large, they're prone to uh, burst and cause massive hemorrhage. So I, I would follow patients like that and and uh, offer appropriate treatment if, if they don't... Uh, respond to the conservative measures. So the hemangiomas, what would make them symptomatic? Because you said they would become symptomatic. So what would you see? Right. So um, by symptomatic, one symptom that occurs rarely is when uh, they uh, sequester platelets. What that means is they eat up the platelets in the body. The platelets are the uh, fragments in the blood that that promote clotting. And when that happens, patients... uh, uh, can have uh, massive hemorrhage. It tends to occur sometimes, actually, sometimes in pregnant women. Uh, there's, a, there's a syndrome where where um, patients with hemangiomas that are pregnant uh, can get that uh, uh, syndrome where the, the platelets become sequestered in the hemangioma, but can happen in 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 non-pregnancy situations too. Another type of symptom is just if they get very large, they can compress surrounding organs and just be very uncomfortable. I I once had a patient who was um, sort of a normal weight and everything, but she had this huge tummy from this, must have been a 60 centimeter hemangioma, and she was living like that for 20 years. Wow. And it made a huge difference in her life that we took it out and... You know, it was like she, a tummy she, tuck. Oh, yeah, it was huge. Wow. Yeah, the surgeons were jealous. <laughs> wow. Wow, that's so interesting. Now, just another question I had regarding the liver, because in, in one of my past roles, I worked a lot with breast cancer patients. And, you know, we would sometimes in the breast cancer patients see metastasis to the liver. Yeah, that's a great question. So... Um, one of the things we deal with most is when colon cancer is spread to the liver. Mm-hmm. So in general, one of the principles of surgical oncology is that surgeons are only useful in the care of the cancer patient when the tumor is localized to one area. But once the tumor spreads, it's what we call systemic disease, and that's not in the purview of surgery because surgery is a local treatment, right. and then you need chemotherapy. However, an exception to that is when colon cancer spreads to the liver. Because what we've noticed is that we can remove colon cancer from the liver, and sometimes it doesn't come back. So there are, we don't operate on colon cancer that spreads to the liver always, but in certain circumstances, in combination with systemic chemotherapy, we would offer uh, surgery. Um, so generally, if someone has colon cancer spread to the liver, I do recommend uh, uh, send, referring the patient to me to evaluate whether uh, a surgery should be part of the treatment regimen. Now, by contrast, breast cancer, which can also spread to the liver, it's usually um, part, part of a systemic phenomenon. In other words, when breast cancer spreads to the liver, removing it from the liver is probably not going to be helpful right. because it usually involves other organs also. Right. Um, 
Now, having said that, I have operated on breast cancer spread to the liver. I remember once in my career, it was a special circumstance. So the type of scenarios we would is if a patient's had breast cancer, they've lived a number of years. In other words, they've shown that their tumor biology is favorable. Mm-hmm. And favorable in that it's not terribly aggressive in that they've lived with this for many years. And the only site that we know of for metastases in the liver, in those cases, perhaps we would consider uh, uh, surgery. Hmm. Um, but generally speaking, colon cancer is the most common uh, reason we, we operate on, on cancer that spreads to the liver. Another cancer that sometimes spreads to the liver that we operate on is something called an endocrine tumor. Oh. Uh, there's a famous person, uh, Steve Jobs, who founded Apple. Yeah. He had an endocrine tumor. And I believe that had spread to the liver, but his was just far too aggressive. Um, but in select cases, we do operate on endocrine tumors because, again, just like colon cancer, some of them have a relatively indolent biology. And if we remove it from the liver, uh, we think it can uh, prolong life in, in, in certain patients. That's amazing. And, you know, having this technique is so intricate, I'm sure. How, you know, are you, you know, when you operate on removing something like that from the liver, technically, how do you know you've gotten what you need? Like, how do you measure those margins? Right. So we, the, so the, the most straightforward way is just by looking at it, but we also have the MRIs and the CAT scans mm. that we have preoperatively. So if, if you know, uh, liver anatomy, and you know where your tumors are. So even if they're deep and you can't see them, uh, you, you have your roadmap uh, that's defined by anatomy. Plus, we use ultrasound in the operating room. Uh. And so interoperative ultrasound. And I should also say that even in surgery, what we sometimes do, say someone has multiple tumors, uh, for example, colon cancer spread to the liver, we sometimes work with our interventional radiologists in the operating room and that will resect some of the tumors but burn or ablate. We use microwave heat to burn uh, tumors also. So wow. sometimes we use a combination of surgery and, uh, and ablation. And um, that's also another reason it's very important to have a great relationship uh, with the interventional radiologist at our hospital. We happen to have an outstanding uh, team at Trinity. We do. You know, and I could speak to them of them personally because I worked with them for so many years and you know getting the lead of our interventional radiology team Dr. Jeffrey Gerson he's amazing and he's uh, you know definitely works side by side with so many surgeons but I think he's extremely excited to have you to be able to do more of what he'd love to do yeah it's mutual yeah we've already uh, collaborated on uh, three patients that's yeah. it's incredible. That was one of the first teams we went around to meet, and it's so important because as they, as you well know, as they see something on an, on an image, and they they alert you right away. You clinically can be that quarterback and work with all the team to get the job done. Yeah, I really like getting calls from radiology. So as soon as they see it on the imaging, if I can know as soon as possible, I can communicate with the primary doctor. And uh, just really, I think one of the worst things about uh, being a patient that's been diagnosed with cancer 
is that waiting period oh, from yeah. diagnosis until having a treatment plan. Right. And if I can know about the diagnosis as soon as the patient does, you know, when, it, when, it, when the MRI is done, then I can communicate with the whole, you know, get a treatment plan moving right, uh, right from the beginning. And I think that's very uh, comforting to the patient. Absolutely. And instead of trying to navigate themselves and getting appointments somewhere else, you know, they get they get a piece of paper and say, well, we, you know, we don't do it here, but we recommend this doctor down New Haven, wherever. And now they've got to call the office and they've got to try to schedule. They've got to have to try to get their films there. And they that is that is so scary and Absolutely. waste time. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's it's suboptimal. Absolutely. And to be able to have this here now and this ability to do so as a team is incredible. So I, I want to, you know, talk more about some of the other areas of interest you have. And I kind of wanted to move to cancers of the GI tract because I don't know that we commonly talk about those um, in the media as much. I mean, we hear a lot about liver, more so, of course, about pancreas, which we'll get to. But what are some of the common things that you see in the GI tract that you would treat? Right. So the most common thing I treat is stomach cancer. Mm. Um and I was told uh, by Dr. Corvo, who's the chairman of surgery here at uh, St. Mary's, that there is a lot of uh, patients with stomach cancer at, uh, in, in the Waterbury area, in part uh, related to some of the uh, industry uh, that was in the area that um, led to um, higher risk of, of stomach cancer. So uh, patients who have stomach cancer uh, would often present with uh, bleeding in their stool or dark stools uh, from old blood, uh, difficulty swallowing, um, and the survival uh, for stomach cancer, if it's caught early enough uh, before it's metastasized, is fairly good. And so it's been one of um, the more gratifying uh, cancers that I treat because the survival is good. Um, what we do is we take out uh, either the whole stomach wow. or part of the stomach and uh, sort of reconnect the GI tract. Um, even when we have to take out the whole stomach, and that would be based on where the tumor's location is located, we reconnect the esophagus, which is a tube that connects sort of the oral cavity uh, uh, with the intest with the stomach. But instead, we reconnect the esophagus with the small intestine and. In the beginning, patients have to eat smaller meals. Usually we recommend instead of them having uh, uh, three normal-sized meals a day, instead of having six sort of baby meals. But eventually, they're able to eat completely normally. Wow. And most, most patients don't have a long-term uh, sequela of not having uh, a stomach. They may need some vitamin injections uh, like B12. But other than that, uh, people live normal lives. Uh, so, and why is it that over time they can eat normally? What happens that allows that change? Uh, the small intestine adapts. I mean, the huh. role of the, the stomach is an important organ, but right. it's not a, a vital organ. Um, it does mechanical uh, and some chemical digestion of the food, but the small intestine is where really uh, the majority, or, or not the majority, but almost the entire entirety of digestion and nu- really nutrient absorption. Uh, happens. So um, uh, it's more than capable of uh, sort of picking up the slack. 
So when you mentioned, you know, they may have to have some, you know, vitamin shots, is that because of the absorption? Um, it's just because certain vitamins are, are, are produced in the stomach. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So it's important for them to get that yeah. nutrients that they're missing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yes. those patients, do you find that once you do the surgery with those patients, that is all that they need? Or do some of those patients just, if it hasn't, if it's metastasized, of course, they're going to need more treatment. Yeah, so it depends. So um, there's been clinical trials testing the efficacy or, or usefulness right. of uh, additional chemotherapy or radiation uh, in patients who have surgery for stomach cancer. And for most patients, the, the sort of simple answer is that for most patients, uh, other than the earliest stage stomach cancer, there is a benefit to uh, chemotherapy or chemo and radiation. Mm-hmm. So. Um, here with stomach cancer, we work very closely with our gastroenterologists, and what we do is that if patients have what we call a locally advanced stomach cancer, in other words, a stomach cancer that's invaded the entire wall of the stomach or involved lymph nodes, then we'll usually start with chemotherapy, uh, then do surgery, then do more chemotherapy afterwards. Okay. So, so it takes a very skilled uh, gastroenterologist to determine before surgery whether it involves the whole wall of the stomach or local lymph nodes. Right. Um, so I'm, I work closely with them. And uh, again, I work closely with the oncologists who administer the chemotherapy. If it's not locally advanced, um, then we'll go right to surgery. If there are lymph nodes involved, though, on surgery, even though we didn't pick it up before surgery, patients will get chemotherapy afterwards. But if there's no lymph nodes involved, then some patients uh, can avoid uh, uh, getting chemotherapy. So if it's, ve- if it's only involving the uh, innermost lining of the stomach and no lymph nodes, that small subset of patients won't get chemotherapy. Now, you mentioned Dr. Corvo had said to you it was based on the industry here. And, I mean, we call Waterbury, if you haven't already learned, the Brass City because there was a lot of um, factories here in the greater yes, Waterbury yes. area. So would it be the chemicals that were in these factories? And Yes, yes. And in fact, I just saw, like when I turned on uh, Netflix um, a uh, couple of weeks ago, there was a new uh, show on Netflix, I think, highlighting one of those factories that were associated with uh, carcinogenesis or wow. risk of cancer yeah. in Waterbury. Wow. Uh, I've got the details. I wish I had the, the program. Oh, yeah. You're going to have to look that one up. we got to research that. Yeah. <laughs> I will get back to you on it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Google, Google it as we speak. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Because that's really interesting because I, I know I had my grandfather um, came here from Italy and, you know, a lot of we had a lot of immigrants come over here from from different countries and they definitely worked in the factories. That's where the jobs were. Exactly. Yeah. And you see you see it today. You see the remnants. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. Yet yeah, that is super interesting. Now those those factories are slowly less apparent in the city, and those buildings are now being used for other things or being turned into other things. So that's really interesting. It would be really yeah. interesting to see what that is on Netflix. So I just googled it. Yeah, googled it. It's called it's called Radium Girls. Oh, the Radium Girls. Yeah, we know about the Radium Girls. Oh yeah, we have a street doc. I'll show it to you called Radium Girls. Way. 
right oh, by okay. right by the hospital. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I should wear a lead jacket. Yeah, you might. <laughs> well, I'm not glowing yet, Doc, and as long as my stomach's okay, you'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. Wow. So, you know, I don't. I want to make sure we don't lose time because I, I think one of the cancers that we're seeing more and more. You and I talked about this recently. Is pancreatic cancer, and um, we, you know, we're seeing more and more of it. Um, you're you've treated over 200 cases of yeah. pancreatic cancers. Talk to me a little bit more about what type of surgery you can do on the pancreas, what you see, and you know what you think. Why, why we're seeing more? Right. So pancreas cancer uh, is quickly becoming one of the top three cancers uh, in the United States. Uh, we don't really know why, uh, but it's uh, um, unfortunately on the rise. It's not, as you said, talked yesterday, it's not a rare cancer anymore. Mm. Thankfully, it's not as common as colon cancer and pancreas cancer, which have better outcomes. But it's it's it is not rare and um we're seeing it also more and more in young people so it we can speculate that it's related to our diet or something in the environment but we haven't uh no one really has any hard evidence uh uh for what's um causing it uh to be an increased frequency uh one bright thing if there is any about this is that we have discovered over the past uh, 20, 25 years, pre-malignant conditions. One of them that's very common is called an IPMN. It's uh, sort of a, a cyst of the pancreas that sometimes can lead to cancer. Uh, and the reason we discovered it uh, within the past 25 years is because our imaging, our MRIs and CAT scans have gotten so much better. So in those patients who have that, we can follow them. And if we think the... Uh, the risk of this cyst becoming malignant is high enough that we can <clears throat> operate on that patient and remove the cyst before it becomes a cancer. Mm -hmm. Of course, the operations on the pancreas are big operations, and you have to balance the uh, risk of surgery with the risk of uh, this becoming malignant. Once patients do have pancreas cancer, um, survival is not great. Um, 80% of patients are diagnosed uh, in a, in a, when the tumor is metastatic. In other words, it's already spread. And the, the average is only about a year. 20% of patients who, who whom the cancer hasn't spread, some of them we still can't operate on because even though it hasn't spread, there are blood vessels that are vital to life that traverse right next to the pancreas. And sometimes it hasn't spread outside the pancreas, but it's touching these blood vessels. Wow. So either we shrink it off the blood vessels and then can operate on it, or it's inoperable. Um, but there are, is a select uh, uh, number of patients that we can operate. Uh, operation on the pancreas, again, is you need expertise because if it doesn't go well, there are a number of complications that can ensue. Um, and... Of the patients that we are able to do surgery on, about 20%, optimistically 30%, but probably more like 20%, will be able to be cured or at least live five years from wow. the tumor. So I just, my first patient at, at uh, 
at uh, St. Mary's was a pancreas cancer patient. Mm. She was quite upset for having pancreas cancer, but I told her that she is in sort of an elite group of patients and that the vast majority aren't even eligible for surgery. Um, so wow. if you are eligible for surgery, you have a fighting chance of beating this. Right. So, so it's so humbling. And if you weren't here, we wouldn't have had the ability to take care of this patient as quickly as we could. So what a blessing for her that you were there in that moment and that the radiologist uh, noticed something on this patient and you were able to intervene. That's just amazing. My privilege. Oh, my goodness. every, every, Every patient I am able to treat is a privilege for me. Now, with the pancreas, Doc, do we see that as a genetic link? Um, so there are, um, there is a uh, syndrome called familial pancreas cancer. Hmm. Um, one of the former United States presidents, Jimmy Carter, uh, had it. A number of members of his family uh, died of uh, pancreas cancer. Um, and in those patients, we have an aggressive uh, screening program um, to uh, monitor uh, by MRI. Uh, and with genetic testing right. uh, for the development of pancreas cancer, and in some cases, we'll recommend uh, prophylactic surgery to remove the pancreas. Wow. Um, of course, it is difficult to live without a pancreas, right? Because the pancreas produces insulin, so um, you become a severe diabetic when we remove the entire pancreas. It's not something we would take lightly. Wow. Um, so, uh, but we do do it um, in, in, in the right circumstances because uh, we used to call patients who didn't have any pancreas and we took the whole pancreas out of brittle diabetic. Right. Uh, uh, I wouldn't use that term anymore because medical care has gotten better that our endocrinologists are able to help patients who don't have pancreas live uh, a normal life, really, or as close to normal as possible uh, because of good... Uh, good uh, care with with insulin regimens now when you when you have a patient that has pancreatic cancer and you decide that you are going to do you are able to do surgery on that patient is the surgery in that portion the the first thing you do and then they follow up with a regimen of potentially chemotherapy right so so it's either that or, again, we spoke about neoadjuvant treatment right. where we give uh, chemotherapy up front mm. uh, and then surgery. So in certain cases, we would give chemotherapy up front, sometimes radiation also, and then surgery and then more chemotherapy after. Uh, in reality, the sort of standard of care is still to do surgery followed by chemotherapy. Mm. Um, and almost all patients are considered for chemotherapy uh, because of the high recurrence rate. I said only about 20 to 30% right. of patients who we do surgery on will be cured. So chemotherapy can sort of increase that number a bit. Right. So we usually, but in some cases, especially I mentioned sometimes it's involving blood vessels that are very close to the pancreas, yeah. which makes surgery difficult, if not impossible. Right. In those cases, we would give... Uh, uh, chemotherapy up front. up front. One of the other things I should mention is a new uh, treatment modality is immune therapy. 
Um, so this is something I used to do a lot of research on, um, and I've published a lot on it. Uh, and immune therapy means uh, giving medication to enable the immune system to uh, fight the cancer. So normally the immune system is uh, geared to recognizing uh, foreign viruses and bacteria, right? Uh, not to 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 fight cancers. When 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 the immune system attacks your own body, that's called autoimmunity, and right. that's generally not a good thing. But in cancer, we want a bit of autoimmunity for the cancer to, for the immune system to recognize the cancer it's foreign. So we have drugs that uh, enable us to do that. We're using that in the cancer that I treat. Uh, immune therapy has shown some efficacy huh. against liver cancer, against stomach cancer, which we spoke about earlier. In pancreas cancer, only about 1% of patients are uh, responsive to immune therapy. But because of that, we do uh, certain uh, gen uh, genomic testing in mm -hmm. everybody who has pancreas cancer to see if they're in that 1% that would benefit from, from immune therapy. Absolutely. We had um, Dr. Adam Borokoff on a couple of weeks ago, who is our um, oncology regional um, chief. And he talked okay. a lot about this type of therapy and cancers. And, you know, he, he just couldn't speak enough about it because it's changed the game. Absolutely. Been a huge game changer. And uh, I used to have a, a research lab that's focused on that. Wow. And, um, yeah. I don't want to lose that thought because that was actually the next thing I was going to go to. So um, you you have down here experimental immunology, which is something that you're really, and is that what you speak of right now is the research you did with that? Yeah. So we've developed some drugs that are now in clinical uh, trials wow. uh, that uh, either um, target certain immune cells that are suppressive. In other words, they suppress the immune response against cancer. So there's two ways to think about the, the immune system when you want to treat cancer. Either you can rev up the sort of good part of the immune system that's going to kill the cancer, or you can knock off the part of the immune system that's telling the body, hey, this cancer is one of us, don't attack it. So we've developed a drug that knocks out a certain type of T cell called a gamma delta T cell. And without getting too technical, that we showed that this is a type of T cell that can suppress uh, the immune response to cancer. Uh, another drug that we've developed is um, uh, a monoclonal antibody, or basically a small, small antibody that uh, targets a, uh, a, a chemical on immune cells, and that chemical is very uh, it, it produces immune suppressive signals. So that's uh, currently uh, in clinical trial, which is being run by a company out of Boston, and it's in clinical trials in a number of centers. And were the um, are, now these were a lot. This is what a lot of what you did prior to coming here to Connecticut, right? Yes. You were doing a lot of work in yeah. research. Uh, ha ha half my time was in, was in research. And I've uh, lectured at uh, major national meetings on this, like the American Association for Cancer Research. And um, I'm also a member of the uh, National Cancer Institute's 
uh, tumor marker environment study section that deals with these type of uh, 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 research programs around the country. Uh, I'm also uh, editor-in-chief of a, one of the uh, famous cancer journals called Oncogene, where we publish a lot of this, these works. It, you know, it's I just when I when I read your your resume and in your bio when it came over, I said, "Oh my gosh!" Like we have the best of the best coming here, and being a part of research to me is just so incredible because it gives you such a broader view on how to treat your patients and what's out there for your patients. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I really like uh, being a, uh, a clinical oncologist. That the field is always changing. Mm. Um, even those who aren't, you know, doing sort of basic science research, are still very have to be up to date and active in an ever changing field. Because uh, the way we treat any of the cancers we spoke about is going to uh, change right. based on new. So something that's badly stretched. You know, back in the day, you know, I'm going to go back ten years ago even more, 15 years ago, we were sending patients everywhere out of Waterbury because we wanted to get them involved in clinical trials. We wanted to get their second opinion or maybe have their surgery somewhere else. But now we're bringing that here. And it, you were, you're so involved in research, you know, and Dr. Borkoff said this to me, one of the most important things you can do as a cancer patient is to take advantage of a clinical trial. Yeah, and I think at the Lever Cancer Center, we have options for clinical trials for most cancers. Right. And we have ex- exceptional oncologists. Uh, and that's, that's why we also have our multidisciplinary meetings regularly where we discuss complicated cases and, and review which clinical trials patients may be eligible for. And in doing those clinical trials, one of the things that Dr. Borkoff said to me, which I thought was so important, and and I want to make sure we highlighted that when you're in a clinical trial, as a cancer patient, you may not be getting the drug in the clinical trial, but you're still getting the best standard of care. You're not getting a placebo. Correct. Often people think of clinical trials as they're being uh, uh, used as guinea pigs. Right. Not quite the case. The basement for the clinical trial or the is at least the best standard of care. So you're either getting the best treatment option or the best treatment option uh, plus something else. Right. And I um, wanted and to bring that point out again because I think that's so important for people to understand. Yeah. So in cancer, we usually say the best treatment you, you can get is to be on a clinical trial. Right. Because you're still getting the sta- best standard of care plus a little cocktail, whatever that is. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Whatever that is. And it's, it's all been, you know, even, anything that goes into clinical trial has had some FDA level of review to make sure that uh, it's safe. Right. That's and, so important. And yeah, yeah. Now, Johnny's given me the, we have a few minutes left, so I want to make sure that we're able to bring this home. So, so Doc, I'd say, you know, coming here, now you've only been here a couple of weeks, you know, but what are what is your vision for what we do here in Waterbury for our patients, for our cancer patients? What would your best case scenario? To offer the absolute highest level of care available anywhere in the country, to really build a program that's much bigger than me, but something that involves the multidisciplinary team of doctors and really elevates uh, our institution 
uh, so that it's recognized as a regional center of excellence for complex uh, cancer care and something that our communi- community can, can take pride in. And we can help uh, a lot of people. That is that is the best vision I can imagine for for our community. As you as you've seen, we are a pretty proud community here in Greater Waterbury, but we definitely have a lot of dedicated physicians. And now you're complementing that team, so we are just overwhelmed and and honored to have you here. That you chose us, so we we can't believe it. So we are so excited. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be here too. That's uh, it's awesome. You know, which and one quick thing: Why did you choose Trinity? Can you say what kind of swayed you here? Um, well, I had a friend who was up here, and <laughs> uh, I was looking to leave New York City. Yeah, and he really spoke so highly about it, and convinced me to come up, and I really liked it. Oh, that's awesome! Um, and I, I liked the other doctors I met. Yeah, that's and great. the commute wasn't all that bad. So as soon as your daughter graduates, as soon as your daughter graduates, we'll move you up here. I hope so. <laughs> you know, I should have added real estate agent to the list of people uh, I'd like you to introduce me to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Don't you worry. I'll I'll make sure we get to somebody. So, Doc, thank you so much. This is Dr. George Miller, our brand new, outstanding surgical oncologist. Um, he is right at St. Mary's Hospital in our Scoville Street office in Suite 303. Um, for appointments or or just to learn more about him, you can definitely visit our website, Trinity Health of ne.org and the phone number for the office is 203-709-5900 but as the audience knows you can always send me a note or an email and I'm, I'll happily connect you robin.sills at trinityhealthofne.org Dr. Miller thank you again so much for joining us have a great night and I'm sure we'll talk tomorrow <laughs> have a great evening take care Robin thank, thank you, you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So I want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. Again, um, you know, we are moving in the direction of expanding all types of care at St. Mary's. And one of our biggest focuses are oncology services um, with our two outstanding oncologists, Dr. Yuming Chang and Dr. Consolito Medrano at the Lever Cancer Center, um, as well as their support team of their APRN, Dr. Karen, I mean, Karen, pa- I, call, I made you a doctor, Karen, Karen Pollard Murphy, APRN. She's outstanding as well as the Lever team and the surgical oncologist, Dr. George Miller. So we are so proud and happy to have him again. If you want to learn more about those services, please visit our website, trinityhealthofne.org. And again, um, his phone number is 203-709-5900. I want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. And we will be back in two weeks um, with our new trauma director, Dr. Karina Biggs. So looking forward to that and have a great weekend. 